Welcome back to your therapy tools. Today I'm focusing on how to cope with living with an alcoholic. And maybe you grew up with an alcoholic, maybe you live with one now, maybe you are one, and you would like to gain a little insight, which is why you clicked on this episode. So I have some information from Al-Anon, and I have other information as well. A lot of times, alcoholics also tend to be very narcissistic, um, very infantilized, meaning they they develop this helplessness, and it's kind of like taking care of a toddler. And it, it can be very exhausting, and you might often find yourself putting yourself last, taking care of this person who cannot control their drinking. And it's, it's very often the case that if you are with an alcoholic, you are very likely a codependent person. And your codependency traits overpower the ideal self, the person you want to be, the person you think you should be. And that creates a huge gap between the ideal self and the real self causing quite a lot of struggle, a lot of depression, anxiety, a lot of negative self-talk, and a lot of not feeling worthy of love unless you're taking care of the alcoholic. When you're taking care of the alcoholic, that gives you a sense of purpose. It gives you a sense of self. I am this person's caretaker. I am important. Without me, this person would die. Um, and it also gives you a sense of control. So you're both unhealthy. And in order for you to heal, you have to break your attachment to the alcoholic. You have to break it off, even if you still live in the same house, even if you love this person with all your heart, you've got to stop focusing on that person so much. And so I've compiled some information that can be helpful. And the, the tools from Al-Anon Recovery, there are slogans. There is a little formula for detachment. And then, of course, the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And some of the slogans that can help you when you're stressed out, when you're depressed, when you're feeling hopeless, just remember to take things one day at a time. Remember to just let go and let God or let go and give it to your higher power, whoever that is. Listen and learn. Um, think about first things first. What is a priority? What has to get done? Sometimes you have to make sure you're getting done the things that need to be done and put everything else on the back burner. And that can mean telling your alcoholic, no, I can't do that for you. I have other things that have to be done right now. And keeping it simple. Keep the focus on yourself. And you want to you focus on making progress, not perfection. You can't be perfect you cannot achieve perfection, but you can always make progress. 
Remember to mind your own business. Don't worry about what the alcoholic in your life thinks or what they're doing. You have to be able to detach and tell yourself, that's a you problem. I'm not dealing with it. And fear. False evidence appearing real. F-E-A-R. False evidence appearing real. So that's when you're basing your feelings as facts, when that's not the case. And of course, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that DBT tools can really help you differentiate feelings from facts. So check into those episodes if you haven't already. And then the word HALT, H-A-L-T. Don't get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. You always want to do a check-in with yourself and make sure you're meeting your own needs to avoid having those areas of vulnerability that can cause stress and cause us to escalate into behaviors that are not helpful for anybody. And the detachment part of this, so alcoholism, they say, is a family disease. Living with the effects of someone else's drinking is too devastating for most people to bear without some sort of help. Um, In Al-Anon, they learn that individuals are not responsible for another person's disease or recovery. So you let go of the obsession with the other person's behaviors, and you start to lead a happier, more manageable life with your dignity and your rights intact. So in Al-Anon, they teach you not to suffer because of the actions or reactions of other people. They teach you not to allow yourself to be used or abused by others. They teach yourself not to do things for others that they could be doing for themselves. They teach you not to manipulate situations so that other people will eat or go to bed or get up or pay bills or not drink alcohol. They teach you not to cover up for their mistakes and misdeeds. You, you don't have to clean up their messes. They teach you not to create a crisis. So when you're, when you're using the 180 method, basically, you're turning away from it. And even though it's heartbreaking and you wish you could be the enabler and help them and clean up their mess and give them some sense of dignity, you need to let them fall. And do not prevent a crisis if it's the natural course of events. So you have to let this person make their mistakes, hit rock bottom, whatever the case. It's not your fault. It's not your responsibility to take care of them. And then they have a list of suggestions, guidelines for living with an alcoholic. Number one, you no longer have to feel alone. You can find some Al-Anon meetings either online or in your community, and you can go and you can find help and guidance and understanding. Your own way of thinking can sometimes deceive you. Having inadequate knowledge of alcoholism can create a lot of confusion, despair, and anxiety. Sharing experiences with other Al-Anon members who have a common problem will widen your understanding and open new ways of dealing with these difficulties in your life. Number two, you no longer have to hide the fact that you're trying to get help. 
Begin by letting the alcoholic know that you are getting help. Seek out all the resources open to you in your community. Help is available from family members of recovering alcoholics, open meetings at Alcoholics Anonymous, sympathetic doctors, of course, uh, your church, your church clergy, priests, pastors, social workers, mental health workers, and clinics. So start now to understand and plan for recovery both for you and the alcoholic. To do nothing is the worst choice you can make. So you can't force the alcoholic to go to AA, but you can. Even though you're not drinking, you can. You can go to Al-Anon, you can go to AA. You can start to have a better understanding. Number three, you no longer have to deny the excessive drinking. Accept the alcoholic as a sick person in need of help. The drinking is compulsive and cannot be controlled through willpower alone. Accept that alcoholism is a progressive illness and that the situation is likely to get worse as long as the drinking continues. And if it doesn't get worse, it will stay the same, which is probably just as miserable. Number four. You do not... You did not cause the alcoholic's drinking. Therefore, you no longer have to be concerned with the many reasons for it. You no longer have to blame yourself or search for a cause. Alcoholics drink because they have a physical, emotional, and spiritual disease of alcoholism. They usually have depression as well. So start focusing your own actions on your own actions. Uh, number five, you cannot control the alcoholic's drinking. You no longer have to obsess about the alcohol and their behavior. If your anxiety you feel compels you to do for the alcoholic what they should do for themselves, this is really just enabling, and it can make the situation become more prolonged. And covering up for the alcoholic or trying to abort the consequences of their drinking can reduce the crisis, but it also perpetuates the, the problem. You're being an enabler. You also can't pour their alcohol down the, down the sink and expect to get results with that because they'll just buy more. Number six, you cannot cure the alcoholic. If their drinking is causing problems, they can be made aware of it and they can be held accountable. You no longer have to make idle threats. Don't threaten unless you intend to carry it out. Don't tell them if you don't quit drinking, I'm leaving you, and then stay. You know, that kind of thing. If you do, if you do need to carry out a previously made threat, be sure to think it through carefully and understand the implications in it for you and the alcoholic. Sometimes threats made in the heat of the moment intended to hurt or punish us only serve to hurt ourselves in the end, to punish others. It hurts us in the end. And number seven, you don't have to blame the alcoholic for all your problems. You don't have to be a martyr. You don't have to be filled with self-righteousness. You no longer need to make emotional appeals. If you love me, you'll quit drinking. Is it, it is possible to have these attitudes without saying a word. Try to develop an attitude in keeping with the facts that you have learned about alcoholism. This will enable you to have compassion for the alcoholic. And as you recover, you can begin to understand and encourage the alcoholic. You no longer have to let the alcoholic's thinking, feelings, and behavior determine your own thinking, feelings, and behavior. 
You no longer have to remain the passive victim of somebody else's illness. Ask for help and take your life back. You can detach from the situation by mentally refusing to internalize those words, those criticisms, and the pain of the alcoholic. You can create physical, emotional, or spiritual distance between you by detaching when you have had enough. Okay, we're up to number 10. I stopped reading the numbers. <laughs> um, number 10, you no longer have to lecture, nag, coax, or reason with the alcoholic when they are drunk or sober. It may make you feel better initially, but it will make the situation worse. By avoiding the above, you can effectively remove yourself from the alcoholic's blame or guilt. Start by reporting their inappropriate actions to them when they are sober by saying what you mean and don't be mean when you say it. Number 11. You no longer have to engage in angry arguments which satisfy the alcoholic's craving for punishment or drama in order to relieve their guilt. Instead, you can deal with your day-to-day -day difficulties with quiet poise and serenity, remembering always that you are doing this for your own sanity and benefit. Number 12. You do not have to accept or extract promises or switch agreements. Alcoholics will often make promises and agreements as a method of postponing pain. Start rejecting them. When you try to reason with or demand certain behaviors of the alcoholic, you're only increasing their need to lie or force them to make promises they cannot possibly keep. 13. You no longer have to let the alcoholic lie, outsmart, or exploit you as it encourages the process of avoiding responsibility and it teaches them to lose respect for you. If you realize that this is happening, stop the conversation. Let them know that you know they're trying you know they're trying to have one over on you. The truth can be painful, but it's better to face reality. Number 14. You no longer need to buy, hide, search, or pour alcohol down the sink. You're only inviting the alcoholic to find ways of getting more. And besides, it's a complete waste of time and money. You no longer need to drink with the alcoholic to try to control their intake or gain cooperation. This will only condone the actions you condemn. Nothing will make them drink more or less than they want to or than their illness dictates, you know? Number 15, you no longer have to rescue the alcoholic. Stop enabling and start letting them suffer and assume responsibility for each and every consequence of their own drinking. 16, you no longer need to feel helpless about the alcoholic assaulting you and your children. Start protecting yourselves. Find a place of refuge where you can stay until it is safe to return home. 17, you and your children no longer need to travel in a vehicle with a driver who's been drinking. Use your own transportation, drive yourself and your children, take a bus, ask for a friend to take you somewhere. You are responsible to protect yourself and your children. Number 18, you do not have to follow other people's advice. You need to decide what is right for you according to your own values and boundaries and circumstances. Close family and friends may be prejudiced and leave you feeling confused, angry, or hurt with their input. Those who understand alcoholism can best help you discover answers to all the questions you might have in your own time and in your own way. 
So, you know, we, we run to our families as support and they, they love us and they want to see us happy. And we talk to them about living with this alcoholic and all the terrible things that are going on. And of course they're biased. They don't like the alcoholic. They're telling you, why don't you just leave? And you know it's not that easy. So they have that prejudice and that bias. And sometimes it's better to seek out people in Al-Anon or AA or a therapist. Number 19, you do not have to follow any of the suggestions on this worksheet. This, this is just a guide to be used with intelligence and evaluation, and you adapt it to your very own individual circumstances. So there's a, a pretty big extensive list that you can print out. Um, if you go to, let's see, what's the name of the website? I think you just go type in Al-Anon, A-L hyphen, a-N-O-N, meetings near me, and then just hit search and, and you'll you'll pull up all kinds of meetings. And they also have Alateen meetings for your, your teens and adolescents to go to if they have a parent who's an alcoholic or live with somebody who's an alcoholic. It can be very helpful for the kids, especially to get them into therapy and Alateen meetings as well. It can really help them. Um, and it's crucial to who they choose when they grow up. Because if you are with an alcoholic, it's very likely that you grew up around alcoholics. And your spirit is attracted to that familiarity. You know, all the other stuff is no fun. Seeing somebody sloppy drunk and passed out uh, dropping their glass on the floor and their glasses hanging half off their face and their mouth gapped open slobbering and maybe they've urinated on themselves that's definitely not attractive and when they get into fight mode and start arguing and picking a fight with you that's not attractive um, not going on vacations or going anywhere with them anymore because you're terrified of their driving because they're drunk that's not attractive and the way that they act helpless and have you doing everything for them is definitely a turn off. But it's it's not it's not those things you're attracted to. It's that familiarity. It's maybe you had you loved your mom to death and she was an alcoholic. And when you're around alcoholics, they have similar behaviors. Some are more violent. Some are more depressed. Um, but there's that familiar feeling that our spirit recognizes in that person and it draws us in and then our codependent uh, traits take over and we want to heal them with our love we want to show them that they are loved we we jump through fiery hoops and break our own damn necks trying to help these people right so that's that's probably a big piece of it oftentimes the clients I talk to who are with alcoholics almost 99% of the time, honestly. Um, they grew up with an alcoholic, a parent or an uncle or a grandpa or somebody that they just adored, but who was also an alcoholic. And they were always trying to get their approval, but they never quite got it. And now as an adult, they're with the same exact type of person and they're heartbroken.
So as I said before, a lot of alcoholics are very narcissistic and neurotic. They're very self-centered. They only care about themselves. They make everything about themselves. They're also helpless victims. They have the victim mentality. They have all that going on. So I'm sure you've heard about gaslighting, but it's it's one of the tactics that alcoholics will use a lot. They'll tell blatant lies. They'll deny they ever said or did something. They'll make you question your own reality. You know, they'll say, oh, yeah, uh, you have a terrible memory. I didn't say that. You have a horrible memory, but you know that. And then other times they might say, wow, you have a great memory. I can't believe you remember that night five years ago. That's crazy. So it just depends. If it's something positive towards them, then you have a great memory and you're awesome. But if you're pointing out something and trying to get them to take accountability, suddenly they never said it, or you're taking it the wrong way, you're just overly sensitive, or you have a terrible memory, or you know they always pull some kind of gaslighting trick out of their hat. They'll use what's near and dear to you as ammunition. They'll tell you how horribly behaved your kids are, or that you don't discipline your children, or they'll pick on your kids through you and try to trigger you that way and shame you that way. They'll wear you down over time. You know, the person that pokes you over and over, please, 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 until you, you, you throw your hands up out of frustration and say, oh my God, okay, just shut up, you know. Um, they project all of their bullshit onto you. They project all of their bullshit onto you. If they're jealous of you and your career, they'll accuse you of being jealous of them. If, if they can't stand your sense of humor, they'll accuse you of hating their sense of humor. If they're cheating on you, they'll accuse you of cheating on them. The list goes on and on, but they'll project their own garbage onto you. If they're a super insecure person, they'll tell you that you're insecure and that you have issues. They try to align people against you. So they're out there talking to all their flying monkeys about how great they are to you, but you're not so great to them. And then their flying monkeys think they're the greatest person on earth. And the people who get to see the alcoholic in uh, areas where they're getting the best of that person because they're not drunk. You know, maybe their work colleagues or maybe their family members um, or old friends or should I say acquaintances because they don't have any close, close friends. They try to hide their pitiful existence from really close friends. So they have acquaintances and maybe they have one drink or two drinks and they drive around and see their friends. So the people on the outside think that your alcoholic is just the greatest man or woman on earth. Oh, they're so wonderful. Oh, yes. And how can you be so mean to them? They tell everybody that you're a liar when you try to reach out and get support from their family or their friends by saying this person is drinking a ton of alcohol all the time. And then their friends or family say, oh, my God, I'll talk to them. You know, that's that's scary. And they'll immediately say that you were exaggerating, that you were lying, that they don't drink that much, that you drink just as much. They'll try to blame blame it on you, project their alcoholism onto you. Um, so gaslighting only works when you're not aware of what gaslighting is. 
Um, so definitely research gaslighting and make yourself very aware of what it entails and how it works. Go look at as many examples as you can and note to yourself mentally when you see it happening in front of you with your alcoholic. When they gaslight you, don't, don't yell at them and say, don't you gaslight me. Just tell yourself in your head, okay, I'm being gaslighted. If you try to confront them on it, in the moment, it will just escalate a big fight and they're probably looking for some drama. They're hungry for drama. So it's best if you don't confront them in the moment, but realize you're being gaslighted and you know the truth. And maybe you could turn on a reality show to give them their drama fix, you know, something they could get into, a boxing match or something so that they'll leave you alone. Um, and then there's, you know, emotional blackmail. And this is a dysfunctional form of manipulation. Um, they use it to put demands on you and threaten you so they can get what they want. And the undertone of emotional blackmail is basically, if you don't do what I want, when I want it, you'll suffer. That's the basic message. So, you know, if you love me, you'll do this for me. And you know if you don't do it, you're going to be accused of not loving them, of using them, of mocking them or controlling them. And then they're going to thrust that shame onto you. Um, they might even say, if you don't do what I want, I'll kill myself, um, which is ridiculous. Or if you leave me, I'll kill myself. That's not your responsibility. If they're stupid enough to kill themselves as heartbreaking and as cold as that sounds, that's not your issue. It's not on you to save their life. This is different from rescuing a baby from a burning building. If there was a baby in a burning building, any red-blooded, loving human being on this planet would rush in there and save that baby. But when somebody is circling the drain because of alcoholism, that's not a baby in a burning building. That's a fully grown adult who has made a terrible choice and they have to have their natural consequences. It's not your job to save them. You have to really get that through your head. They might say things like, I'm going to take this vacation with or without you, making you feel terrible so you end up paying for it. Um, you know, they'll manipulate They'll also try to manipulate who you're friends with and who you talk to, and they'll use that emotional manipulation on you with that. Negging is when somebody tries to manipulate you into feeling bad about yourself. They'll say things like, uh, oh yeah, that haircut's nice, but it's all wrong for your round face. Or that skirt's really cute, but I think I'd get a longer top so that you could hide that gut. They disguise insults as questions as well. Don't take this the wrong way, but are you really going to eat all that? Oh my God, that's a lot of food. Or they're always just joking. So negging is, is, is also a form of gaslighting. Um, they might look at you and say, you might say something like, hey, I want to come sit on your lap and give you a big hug and kiss. And they might look at you and say, oh, like Humpty Dumpty. And then you're like, ouch, 
that was insulting. And then they say, oh, I was just joking. Calm down. You're so sensitive. When really they just called you fat, you know. Um, they'll compare you to other people. They'll say things like, you know, maybe you should um, go back to school because your sister has a doctorate and she's really smart. And it, you must be disappointed that you don't have a doctorate. I bet the, that's hard in the family, huh? Because they probably think she's better than you. And it makes you feel bad about yourself. So, nagging is another form of gaslighting. And then, of course, there's the love bombing. If you live with an alcoholic, you know there are times when they do love bomb you. And it's usually when they need something from you. You know, maybe it's at the point where you're taking care of all the bills and you're taking care of the whole house and you're taking care of the landscaping and you're taking care of every damn thing while the alcoholic just sits around and gets drunk. Um, you might get angry, you might feel resentful and they resent you because you're doing a better job than they are and you're capable of doing more than they are and they resent you for picking up the slack and getting everything done. They resent you for it because they're jealous because they can't get off their drunk ass and do something. Um, so any success you have, no matter how large or how small, they resent you. However, when bills are coming due, when the mortgage is due, when a car needs to be repaired, when something like that is coming up, they will love bomb you and they'll manipulate you into giving them just what they want. So you'll jump up and you'll find a way to get the money to pay the mortgage if they don't have it. Because first they'll love bomb you and then they'll say, Oh, gee, I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh, honey, I, I'm like $500 short for the mortgage this month. I don't know what I'm going to do. And then you say, Oh, no worries. I get paid Friday. I'll give it to you. Or they say, oh, I need tires on my car. I don't know what I'm going to do. My tires are bad. And then you're over there. I'll help you get tires. Um, and after they love bomb you, you start feeling like everything's going to be okay. Things are going back to normal. We're going to be all right. And then as soon as they get what they want, they go right back to being toxic and negative towards you. So be aware of what love bombing is. If, if all of a sudden your alcoholic is being a sweetheart and loving and all of these things, you might want to ask yourself what they want because it's likely that they need something from you. They want something from you. Let's take a quick break right here and I'll be right back. All right, thank you for hanging in there. Welcome back. So we've talked about, I've talked about living with an alcoholic and what it can be like. And hopefully that has enlightened you a little bit. And I hope that you get help through Al-Anon, through therapy. If, if you feel you are the codependent type of person, and if you grew up around alcoholics and now you're with one and you're taking care of them, enabling them, you are very likely a codependent type of person. And I often hear people say, I'm an empath, I'm an empath. Um, I think a lot of people are getting confused between 
what an empath is and what codependent traits are. They really blur the lines on that. So maybe you feel you're an empath, um, but you're, you're very likely either or a, a codependent or you could be an empathic codependent. We can call it that. So it's time for you to look into the 180 method and that's where you're doing the opposite action. That's also a DBT skill is opposite action. If you find yourself hyper-focused on your alcoholic and making sure they don't kill themselves by leaving their phone charger plugged in and spilling a drink right next to their bare foot, if you're hyper-focused on making sure they don't stop breathing while they're passed out on the couch covered in urine, if you want to make sure, you know, if you're always just focused on this person 100%, it's time to stop. When you find yourself doing it, give yourself a list of five things you could be doing for you. And let me ask you a question. If I were a wizard or a high priestess of the highest magical court, or if God himself gave me the power to grant one miracle and it was for you, and I granted you that miracle, I waved my wand, and I gave you your version of a life worth living, your version of the perfect, most beautiful life, the happy life, you being the best version of you, and your life being the best version it can be in this moment. Write down what that looks like. Write it down. If, if I could grant you a beautiful, happy life that you've dreamed of and imagined, what would it look like? Write down your life worth living. Write down your happy life. Write it down in great detail. I want you to write down everything in detail about what your life would look like if I waved a magic wand and just fixed everything for you. How would it look? How would you feel? How would you look? What would you do? What would you do with that life? What kind of hobbies would you have? What kind of joy would you feel in your heart? Would you smile more? Would it be genuine? Would your anxiety be gone? Would your depression lift? What would happen? And after you write all that down, I want you to write down a couple of small goals that could help you get closer to that life that you just described to yourself and get closer get a closer space close in the gap between the ideal self and the real self because your ideal self is happy and free and not stressed out and not taking care of a giant toddler alcoholic your your ideal self is amazing and strong and all these things but your real self is a codependent enabler who's miserable and wishes for something better so it's time to take that step write down your ideal life I just granted you one wish and boom here's your beautiful life what does that look like and then write down one or two big goals that you could work towards creating that manifesting that in your world.
because you do have the power to do that. And I wanted to share a little tip on emotional regulation. This is from Module 4 of the Expanded DBT Skills Training Manual by Peter... Oh, sorry, Lane Peterson and Courtney Sidwell Peterson. So this is page 99. If you have the workbook, you can check it out. If you do not have the workbook, emotion regulation lowers your vulnerability factors and brings balance. So it keeps you from losing your shit. It keeps you from flipping out. So a low level of anxiety about a test might motivate you to study and be successful, but a high level of anxiety might paralyze you and cause you to not succeed. So finding that balance is crucial, right? A little bit of anger can be productive because we can use that energy in a productive way. We can clean the whole house. We can pull all the weeds in the garden. We can sit down, we can take a few deep breaths and realize I'm angry. I'm very angry about this and, and I feel angry because I'm feeling disrespected and used right now. So let me think about this and go to the root of the anger. When you're feeling disrespected and used, that's emotionally painful. It could also cause emotional fears that you're not worthy of love. So at the root of that anger, you've got a couple things going on, right? So you would sit down and you would think of, you know, using dear man, the dear man skill in DBT. You would use, you would use that and you would say, okay, how can I get my needs met? I will respectfully ask that my needs get met. And if I am told no, I can handle it. If I am told no, I will find another way to get my needs met. And sometimes we have to cut contact with somebody who refuses to observe a boundary. Um, so attraction is another emotion that we really have to balance because that can motivate us to initiate healthy and respectful relationships but it can also keep you going back to a toxic relationship over and over. Um, like I talked about that attraction, your soul attraction to the familiarity. And maybe it's not so much. You might be asking yourself, what is wrong with me? Am I stupid? Why do I stay here? Why do I keep coming back? It's not because you're stupid. It's not because you're helpless. It's because you have that attraction of familiarity. They... They remind their soul reminds your soul of somebody that you loved and cared for as a child. Most of the time, that's the case. So that attraction is not good for us. And oftentimes when you leave a, a toxic relationship, I, I've heard it a million times. It's like I'm dating the same person over and over, but they have a different name and a different face. But it's the same toxic traits over and over. That's that sense of familiarity. That's what you're used to. That's what feels like home to you. That's that's your normal. Um, so it's important to get that that aspect of attraction under control, and realize when your body is just looking at a familiarity versus something that you truly would want in your life. 
And depression can be very informative about what you need to change in your life. Maybe you need to have a healthier lifestyle. Maybe you need to make a full change and start over in your life. Um, and that can be productive, you know, a mild feeling of depression. It's kind of like when we have a pain in our body that alerts us that something is wrong and we go to the doctor and get it checked out. A mild depression alerts us that our life is not on track and we need to make some changes. An intense depression, that's a little different. It's, it's intense. It immobilizes you. It makes it feel impossible to change anything, much less get up in the morning and brush your damn teeth. So emotion regulation goes a long way in helping, helping get that balance and helping to regulate emotions and avoid blow-ups and avoid hasty decisions and avoid acting on impulse. Emotion regulation lowers our vulnerability factors. So definitely check into emotion regulation. Um, I have a few different episodes on different tips for emotion regulation. Um, feel free to check those out if you have not already. And it's time to cultivate some self-compassion. It's time to let go of perfectionism. And if you have codependent traits, you are stuck in perfectionism. You are everybody's go-to person. And you are above and beyond with everything that you do. And that is beautiful. That is beautiful. But let's do the 180. And let's be above and beyond for ourselves. Let's be loving and compassionate and be the go-to girl in the mirror. You need something. You have some needs that need to be met. That's your girl. That's your man. The person in the mirror. That's the person who's there for you. So if you think you have a problem with shame, but you are a perfectionist, then you have a problem with shame. If you think you don't have a problem with shame, but you're a perfectionist, you do have a problem with shame. Toxic shame is the foundation for perfectionism. If you don't claim shame, it will claim you. The way to shame is perfectionism. And the way to get away from shame is self-compassion and progress, not perfection. Perfectionism makes you follow rules and become a major people pleaser, codependent. With perfectionism, you are the same as your actions. You are what you do. And you are all about the perfect performance in whatever it is that you do. And there's a big difference between healthy striving and then perfectionism. You have to be able to di differentiate between healthy striving and perfectionism. Perfectionism will always lead you to anxiety, addiction, depression, and other health challenges. Perfectionism leads to life paralysis. You're paralyzed. Your feet are in quicksand. It's like that intense, deep depression. It's all about the perception of perfection. That is why perfectionists experience so much shame and blame and judgment, and there's no way to control other people's perceptions. Perfectionism leads to more perfectionism because it does not question 
the faulty logic of perfectionism, but it focuses on how to look, how to live, and how to do everything perfectly. Perfectionism never happens in a vacuum. We pass it down to our children, our colleagues, our friends, our families, and we suffocate with them. This is the same way compassion happens. When we are compassionate with ourselves, we also spread it to our children, our friends, our family, and the workplace. So, shame and perfectionism are twin sisters. Shame is for those who claim it. Perfectionism leads you to being paralyzed in life. Feeling judged, blamed, and shamed is not a normal part of the human existence. So, letting go of perfectionism. You may struggle with that. And I, I would have to say that in order to let go of that struggle, start doing some half-assed chores. You know, if normally you go in and clean the whole kitchen, including the floors, the cupboards, everything, and you make it beautiful, this time just do the dishes and leave the counters dirty and walk away. And it's not going to feel good. You're going to be like, oh, God, I hate that. Leave it and delegate it to somebody else. Make one of your kids go clean the counters. Tell your, tell your spouse to get in there. Hey, I did this, you do that. If they don't do it, do it later in the evening. But don't do it all at once. You have to walk away and leave a job unfinished for a period of time. And over time, you'll train yourself that it's okay. It will get done. It doesn't have to be perfect right now. It's, I know, you're probably shaking your head thinking, hell no, I'm not doing that. That's your perfectionism talking. <laughs> so I encourage you to give it a shot. Just give it a shot. See, see if you can do it. I challenge you. I double dog dare you <laughs> to try it. And um, the information on perfection and shame, that's from Brene Brown. And um, check out her book, The Gifts of Imperfection. And the, the subtitle says, let go of who you think you're supposed to be and embrace who you are. I love Brene Brown, her, her books, all of her trainings that I've done. I adore her. She's amazing. And if you're struggling with toxic shame and you need more assistance with that, I do have the shame shields and the toxic shame detox. So let me know. Uh, you can email me. You can leave me a comment. Um, but you know how to find me. So... That pretty much sums up our episode for today. I just really wanted to share this with you because it is tough. It is tough when you live with somebody who's an alcoholic or who's addicted. It is so tough. You have to constantly be on your toes. You're stressed out. You have a lot of responsibility piled on top of your head that you don't want. And they expect it, and they're entitled, and you enable them, and you're codependent. And it feels like you could never break the cycle, but you can. You absolutely can. Think about this. If you think about it, 
it takes a hell of a lot of strength, a hell of a lot of determination, and a hell of a lot of self-sacrifice to take care of an alcoholic or an addict. It takes the strength of an army and that's all inside of you. Now imagine you take that power and strength and you use it for you. Take that power back. They have to experience their own consequences and they have to figure their life out, grow up and get help for their addiction. It's not your job to make sure their life is functioning. It's their job. So if you take that power and that strength and that compassion and that love that you're pouring out into this person and you're struggling day to day, but you push forward like a warrior, like a soldier, turn all that around onto the person in the mirror instead. It's not selfish. It's self-care. It's not shameful. It's compassion for yourself. It's love for yourself. You're incredible. You are incredible. You are strong. You are amazing. And I want you to use that as a mantra for a few days. Look into your own eyes in the mirror and say, I am strong. I am amazing. I am worthy of love. I am love. I am beautiful. And then stare into your own eyes after you say, I say you stare into your own eyes and say, you are worthy. You are strong. You are beautiful. I love you. It's time to turn that love back onto yourself. Reach out to Al-Anon, reach out to Alcoholics Anonymous, reach out to a great therapist like me, <laughs> or reach out to Alateen. Whatever the case, please, please reach out for support and get help if you have to live with an alcoholic. It is not easy, and you are a tough, tough cookie, but it really helps to have some support. So, sending out love and light and positive energy to everybody listening today. Make it a beautiful day, and love yourself. Love yourself more.